Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to give a conclusion of kind of our talks about the problem of evil and what possible Mormons' solutions are. We've talked about several theodicies. We've gone into my dad's specific plan of atonement theodicy. And today, in light of the Christmas season and just the idea of the title, the plan of atonement theodicy, we haven't yet talked about how the atonement itself fits into this theodicy and what a unique perspective might be because, remember, we talked about a different theory of atonement and you can go back and listen to those podcasts where we talk about different theories of atonement, but the one that my dad affirms is called the compassion theory of atonement. So, you know, we're not going to go into that in depth here as we did in the other podcast, but we're going to mention how that unique view of the atonement affects this idea of theodicy, and then we'll talk about some other ideas about accepting Christ and such. So, anyway, I guess I'll just ask the question more formally, Dad. So, how does Christ fit into your atonement? We've talked about, you know, all the different aspects of the pre-earth life, consent, and things like that, as far as general humanity goes. But, as is very strong in Mormon theology, Christ is said to be the centerpiece of the whole plan of salvation. So, I assume that he should play a large role in the supplement of atonement theodicy as well. Could you kind of go into what your view on that is? Yeah, so what Christ does is through his life and his condescension to become a human being and his subsequent exaltation, he opens the door for all of us to participate in exaltation. And his atonement is the centerpiece of the theodicy. So the 10,000-foot view for just a second, the point of the plan of atonement theodicy is not to justify evil as somehow a greater good or all for the best. It's not all for the best that Rachel Runyon was murdered and raped. It's not all for the best that the car rolled over my friend's daughter. And it's not all for the best that millions of people died of smallpox. However, in this theodicy, there is true and genuine evils events that occur that all things considered do not make the world a better place. The point, however, is rather that evil can be redeemed by giving it meaning, by choosing to return evil with love, by transforming it into an opportunity for healing and growth. There is no guarantee that we will all give this meaning to our experience of evil, but atonement makes it possible to transform evil, to redeem it. Now remember we talked about redeemable evils. A redeemable evil is an event that has the potential to be given meaning because it potentially furthers God's plan of atonement and, in fact, benefits or furthers the interests of those involved in the plan. The end goal is a towering and magisterial good of the most fulfilling and loving relationship possible that literally deifies and transforms us into divine persons in unity with God. We gain all that could possibly be gained, eternal life. That's the very kind of life that God lives. Atonement, I have defined, is this manner of living in loving unity, with no barriers, without isolation or separation. It is to possess a fullness of enjoyment of all that can be enjoyed and experienced. Christ himself shows the way by becoming the chief volunteer. Now remember, we're not ontologically distinct from Christ. In Mormon thought, we exist in the same way that he does. 
we exist of ontological necessity. That is, it is factually impossible that we fail to exist as intelligences. We have the very same kind of being that Christ does, and that opens the way for us to participate, not merely analogically, not merely in some shadow of a way that, that would be somewhat like being like God. We participate fully in the fullness of the deified experience of love in the Godhead. That's the end goal. And it's not merely for us to participate. It's not just for me or for you. The goal is for the whole entire human family and indeed the entire universe to be invited into this relationship. And so this is such a great good that it justifies experiencing any finite evils that may be necessary in order to obtain it. It justifies a plan where genuine evils can be allowed to occur because otherwise this goal is impossible. And again, atonement is defined as God's mode of being in relation to us. God seeks to love us and invites us into this loving relationship fully. That's why Christianity is the religion of love. Everything that Christ taught is teaching us how to be in a loving relationship of the kind that he shares with the Father. And so Christianity is all about earthly experiences where we learn to love one another in this very divine manner, in the very way that he demonstrated in his life. And he opened the way for us through his death and resurrection to progress to be to the point that God is in his participation in glory. Without him, this plan of atonement theodicy is impossible. He's also, as I said, the chief volunteer. And remember, we discussed the fact that when there are dangers to be confronted, we ask for volunteers, for people who are willing to confront the dangers, that others may benefit from their experience. Christ himself becomes, and without him, he's essential, it can't be done. But he's not the only volunteer. There are volunteers all around us, people who are here in our lives to serve us and give us the opportunity to have experiences. Life is set up in such a way that naturally we're going to run into people who are complete jerks, at least that's how we may judge them from time to time, and these are the people who challenge us. But it's not just complete jerks, it's people who are so totally evil that they challenge the very notion of our humanity. And so we're in a world that gives us this opportunity to find meaning in our lives, to redeem these evils through love. And love is the only thing that could do it. And not just the kind of love where I kind of like you. The kind of fully divine love that we see manifest in Christ's forgiveness on the cross. The kind of love that gives everything, nothing withheld, in order to have a healed fullness of relationship. So that's what we're talking about at this Christmas time. We're talking about the being who condescended from a fullness of glory to be so helpless in a manger that he became a baby who had to be taken care of by others. He was so helpless, and we have this story, I'm not sure of its historical authenticity, but at least I think it says something very important, and that is when Christ was a baby, Herod was going to kill all of the babies. And so his parents had to go to Egypt. They had to flee into Egypt to evade that. And what that means is Christ was so helpless, he couldn't protect himself. He had to rely on his parents for protection, and they had to flee the country. Because he was, he was helpless as a child like we all are. He went through everything that we go through. And so the plan of atonement theodicy focuses on this divine love and focuses on Christ, not merely as the chief exemplar of that divine love, also that, but not merely that but also as the one who turned the key so that we could be together eternally as families in a sealed relationship, turning the keys so that nobody will be left out of the relationship, 
and turning the key so that the fullness of divine glory can be shared. There is nothing greater that could possibly be imagined by humans. Nothing more valuable than this kind of relationship and love. We don't know of anything greater. We don't know of anything even potentially greater. And it is worthy of a human's life experience to express love, to learn to love, to return evil with love. This is what Christianity is about. All right. And having said that, so what did the atonement itself do that was so essential? I mean, we've talked about it in the Compassion Theory of Atonement. And maybe if we ask the question like this, it'll help illustrate it. It, To see the part the atonement plays in the plan of atonement theodicy, what would the theodicy look like without an atonement? Why is this atonement necessary? Why can't people just learn from their experiences here on earth? Why can't we just decide to forgive each other and to let go of pain? As we discuss when we discuss the compassion theory of atonement, we do have the power to simply forgive each other. It's simply a power that we have as human beings and the kind of beings that we are to simply forgive one another. What we don't have the power to do is to clear the fog off of our own self-deception. Our self-deception has to be exposed to us. And here I want to point out a facet of Christian experience, and I'm going to get a bit audacious here and define what a true Christian is. This isn't audacious, it's just standard Christianity, but it's breathtaking. A Christian is a person in whom Christ has taken up abode, who shares life with Christ so that Christ has entered into that person and resides within that person. A Christian is a, is a person who is enlightened, growing in the light of Christ so that we grow from one small grace to another, from one degree of glory to another, until we are conformed to the image of Christ. So what this looks like without Christ is the very possibility of achieving what we're after is impossible. Through his resurrection, Christ opened the door to the potential of resurrection and therefore to fully participating in the glory of God. It can't be done without his turning the key of resurrection. Without Christ turning the key of salvation and participating in our very lives, we can't participate in the divine life. His atonement just is this manner of being in us and with us. So without Christ, the very notion of the kind of fullness of relationship and love that we're talking about would be impossible. It's the very center of what it is to be a Christian. And it means that the person who is a Christian, a true Christian, reflects this love in everything that's done and in their lives and the light shines in their countenance so that we can see it there's a light in the countenance of christians that is palpable it's visible to those who have eyes to see and so we're talking about the very possibility of achieving the magisterial good that i talked about because of christ what he has done and opened through his death and resurrection what he has done by taking up a boat in us and inviting us into this relationship. He's the broker, if you will. Remember, we talked about the nature of the honor and shame societies. Christ is the mediator who brings us to the Father. Without him, we can't do it. And we can't do it because without him, we simply aren't able to participate in the divine life. His atonement is what shares that divine life with us, at least as I've defined atonement in the compassion theory. Okay, and then I guess remind us, if you will, a little bit about, you know, you, you have an audience that, again, probably having the penal substitution idea in their mind of how this 
relates. And so you're using the same language, but you probably mean a little bit different things. So is it the actual death and resurrection that does something to help us into that? Or when he's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, is he paying for your sins? Or remind us of what your compassion theory says about those specific events that most Mormons would emphasize as the atonement, and then that's where it is, you know? Yeah, he's not paying for sins. In other words, it's not the case that, that Christ has amassed a superabundant bank account, and so he can pay for things that we can't afford to pay for. It's not the case that God is pleading with a vengeful and vindictive father who wants to punish us, and the loving son persuades this vindictive father not to do so. It's not the case that somehow Christ is an actual substitute for us so that the only innocent person in the history of the universe is punished in our place and all of the evil and, and guilty people go free. It's not a penal substitution theory of atonement at all. What Christ does is transforms the nature of reality so that what wasn't possible before his life is now possible after his life. After his life, it's possible to achieve through resurrection and exaltation and fullness of glory. Because of his life, he's now able to fully share with us everything that is. Remember, he shared a human experience. And this experience was something he couldn't experience, the father couldn't experience either, without undergoing a human life. And why is that? It's because it's logically impossible for them to do so. They exist as a united Godhead in the most complete, fulfilling, boundaryless, loving relationship possible. By its very mode of being, it's impossible for them to experience isolation, aloneness, what it is to be alienated and abandoned. These kinds of experiences and what they are like can only be known through experiential knowledge. Remember, experiential knowledge is a particular type of knowledge. And they can't have this kind of knowledge without actually experiencing it. So through the condescension, through the incarnation, by becoming a human being like us, he learned what it was to suffer. He learned to have compassion. He learned to succor his people through the things that he suffered. These are standard Mormon scriptures. They're also in Hebrews 7 in, in one form or another. And what is essential to the atonement is also the entirety of Christ's mortal life and the experiences that he has in learning what he truly had to learn what it was like to be a human being, what it was like to be apart and separated and alienated. And the fullness of this alienation is seen on the cross, where in his moment of greatest need, and we talked about this earlier, but at this Christmas time, I think it's important to focus on it. This is a man who, in his entire human life, had walked in close communion with his father. His father was always present in his consciousness, always there to be with him, always responding to him, always speaking to him. And on the cross, God wasn't there for him. He was completely, fully abandoned. We read that in the, in the Synoptic Gospel. He felt so alone. He felt abandoned. And so the fullness of alienation and rejection and, and being alone is experienced by Christ. And none of us have ever been nailed to a Roman cross, which has got to be one of the most awful deaths possible. I mean, these Romans were expert at torture and making an example of people, and that's what they were doing. And Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to this cross, and in that moment, his father wasn't to be found. It is the most complete alienation possible for a human being. I believe this is what it means when it says that he descended below all things. 
and I, I think it means, you know, the scriptures are to be taken literally. He experienced the fullness and gifts Gethsemane of unity with the Father and all humankind. And within close proximity experiences, the most complete alienation possible for a human being to know. And so what he includes within his experience is accomplished through his mortal life and atonement. His capacity to love us, to succor us, and to be with us is increased by having these experiences and opens the way to fully participate with us to bring us from our alienation to be in the oneness and unity of the divine Godhead with him and the Father and the Holy Ghost. Okay, so you're saying basically that the atonement was maybe more for Christ in a way to learn how to understand humans and then at that point we can be in a relationship because he couldn't, I guess without true what in English would be called empathy, we couldn't be invited in? Yeah, more than empathy, it's compassion. Compassion means literally to experience with. Empathy is to, through your imagination, imagine what it would be like for another person. He wasn't, this wasn't imaginary for him. It is that, but it's also more. In other words, yes, Christ gained capacity through his mortal experiences, but the atonement wasn't just for Christ, it was also for us. I've already mentioned how it opened the door through resurrection. It opened the door for him to fully participate and share in our lives. But more, it opened the door for us to see and know a fullness of divine love. In the Book of Mormon, and we've talked about this before, the image of atonement is when the fiery flying serpents fly into the camp of Israel and begin biting people who are dying because of the poison. And Moses takes and foists upon a pole a snake and says, if you look on this, you'll be saved. And it's the simpleness of the task. To look and see our Savior and his compassion for us that opens our hearts so that he can be with us. There is a human movement, and I'm going to assert that it's more literal than metaphorical, where we open our hearts, not, certainly not the beating hearts that pump blood, but what heart really means in Latin to be the core, the center, the eternal part of us. When we're willing to break down the barriers and walls and truly open our hearts so that the divine energy can enter therein and the divine life can flow into our hearts and our light can thereby also be opened so that it can flow from our hearts to others. In this moment, we become justified and, and enter onto the path of sanctification, which is a process that takes time. And in this movement, we become Christians. Christ enters into us as a shared life. And so the atonement is more than just what happened to Gethsemane. It's more than Gethsemane and the cross. It's his entire life, but it also is the way that God seeks to be in relation with us. He seeks to be at one with us, to be unified so that we live literally a shared life. And I know the difference between metaphorically, figuratively, and literally. I mean this literally. The scriptures present it. The, the key term in Greek, if we, as we have noted, is zoe. Zoe means life, but in Christian thought, Zoe takes on a particular meaning of shared life. There is this divine energy that enters into us. It's divine light, it's intelligence, it's power. It is what God shares with us to vivify us with a new kind of life where we're born again to be Christians. We're born again over in Christ's image, and we grow in Christ's image from day to day as we practice love and demonstrate love. And we are Christians only to the extent that we manifest love, and to the extent that we don't, we're not Christians. And, I mean, and we all go back and forth. I don't mean, you know, it's not, not up, up, and away <laughs> as Christians. 
It's confronting new challenges and learning how to love all over again, even when it looks impossible. And so I guess, yeah, I just had something dawn on me that I hadn't during our whole discussion of the atonement theodicy. But when you say it that way, when you say it's the plan of at-one-ment, meaning that's the whole plan. The whole plan is to be at one with God. It's not, I don't know, because I think usually we think of atonement in the usual English way that it's used modernly. Atone just means to like suffer and pay. But what you're using it here is that its original meaning in the scriptures is this out, literally this at-one-ment with God that Jesus invited his disciples in and he desired that we all join into it. And so that's what salvation, I guess, is. This is more than a plan of salvation or exaltation. It's a plan of becoming one with the Godhead becoming the gods. Exactly. Hence the plan of atonement theodicy. I, I love it when lights go on. I, I love it that you just got that. That's that's so fulfilling for me. Well, good. All right. Let's shift gears very slightly. And I just wanted to make mention of this because it is part of the problem of evil. In a paper you did a while ago, which I'll post in the show notes, you did a paper with David Paulson, who is a philosophy professor emeritus at BYU. It's titled Sin, Suffering, and Soul-Making, Joseph Smith on the Problem of Evil. And I only want to focus on one specific section right now, just because it's a, an aspect we haven't talked about. And that's called the Soteriological Problem of Evil. And again, soteriology, as we went over in Volume 2, is just a theory of salvation. So he says... Earlier, when we introduced, or I guess this is you too, but you talk about early in the paper, it says, earlier when we introduced the logical problem of evil, we argued that most discussions of the problem were too narrow and especially unfair to the Christian believer in that they failed to take into account the problem's strongest solution. The incarnation of God the Son in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his triumph over sin, suffering, and death through his atonement and resurrection. But, ironically, the strongest solution to the problem of evil, when understood in traditional terms, becomes itself another problem. And then I just want to read this next paragraph to explain that. So there are two types of soteriological problems of evil. The first arises out of the New Testament teaching that salvation comes only through Christ. We call this the exclusion problem, which I guess I'll briefly explain. So, in other words, for 100% of the people that lived before Christ, they couldn't come to Christ through Christ because he didn't exist as in his human form yet, and so that couldn't happen. And, you know, though Christianity is a very popular religion, there's people born in different countries throughout various times, even now, that probably have no understanding of Jesus Christ and what he is, and so they, they never even had a chance to accept him. And if the door is only through Christ, then, wow, it looks like they got left out of the plan. The exclusion problem is twofold. One has to do with the fact that if you never heard of Christ, you were essentially damned to hell because you didn't have the necessary experience in life of confessing Christ as your Savior. You didn't have the opportunity to be baptized and therefore born again in his life. And therefore, you were always somehow in, in standard Christianity consigned to hell or consigned to some lesser glory. And this is a big problem because it's so unfair. I mean, it's through no fault of anyone. They come, they don't have the chance, and, and it just happens to be, wow, I was so lucky to be born into, uh, into the United States of America when the Christianity was here because now I can be saved. And, you know, all those people who weren't born there, yeah, tough luck, too bad. But people can't be damned out of a matter of bad luck, and, and I think that's simply the sense of unfairness that arises 
Now, let me bring this back into the Atonement Theodicy. The goal is that everyone is invited into this relationship. So the goal is to be exalted as families because, frankly, if you guys aren't there with me, it, it won't be heaven. And to the extent there's just one soul that isn't included within the fullness of our relationship of love, our glory will be diminished, our enjoyment will be diminished, and it won't really be the fullness that we could enjoy. And so the goal is to include every living creature that's ever been into the fullness of celestial glory. And, of course, that's accomplished in Mormonism through ordinances for the dead. Now, I want to say something about ordinances for the dead. They seem like they're just so unnecessary. I mean, it, it seems once you start the vicarious baptism for the dead, I could just go into the water and be baptized for every person who ever existed and get it done with, and not, they would all be saved. I mean, like at one time, like, hey, I baptize you for on behalf of every single person. Amen. The end. Yeah, it would be very efficient to do it that way, and I suspect it could be done that way. I don't see any reason it couldn't. But the fact is, there's another particular kind of love that is learned through going through these ordinances for others. Every time we give a gift, it creates an implied obligation to re-gift. I mean, people use this in stores. They hand out samples because they know you're going to feel an obligation to buy because they gave you a sample. And sociological studies demonstrate that, in fact, this is a very powerful marketing tool. That's why they do it. But in our culture, and I, I, I'm not aware of any culture where this is an exception, gift-giving creates obligations. And I can give the gift because, you know, I obligate you to now return my gift. But when we give a true gift, our intent is never to create an obligation on the part of the other person. We want to give a pure gift. And work for the dead is an opportunity to truly give out of pure love instead of out of expectation for return. We don't know these people. We don't know that they'll accept. This is a work that is done simply out of pure love for those who've gone before, out of gratitude for what they've done for us. And so it gives us an opportunity to learn a new dimension of love, selfless love, the kind of love that occurs when we give a true gift. Kierkegaard, as a matter of fact, addresses this in one of his work when he talks about work for the dead and recognizes that this is a peculiar opportunity where in only this way can honest, true, genuine love be given. And so it gives us an opportunity to purify ourselves through a kind of love that is otherwise, I believe, unachievable. And my hat is off to those who express this kind of love purely by, you know, those, those who go out of their way to do genealogical work and those who care for people in their family. They give this out as, as a sheer gift of love without expectation of return. And it's a divine kind of a gift. It's the kind of gift that deifies us and allows us to participate as saviors because this is the kind of gift and love that Christ gave. And so we are giving and receiving in the same way that Christ does. Now, let me point out also that there can't be any gifts if there are no recipients. And gratefully accepting a gift that is given out of pure love is itself a gift. And it gives an opportunity for those who didn't have an opportunity to receive a pure gift of love with gratitude and, and, and love in return. So the reason I suspect that it's not done the way I just described, you know, vicariously for everyone all at once, is so that individually we can connect ourselves with our families and turn our hearts to them to truly be with them through the gifts that we give. And I suspect that this is another form of divine love that we must learn in order to fully participate in the fullness of the Godhead, in the fullness of divinity that's been offered to us. 
And so it solves the, the soteriological problem of evil, which is the exclusion problem that some people are out of, you know, it's a matter of sheer dumb luck, not given the opportunity to actually have a fullness of joy, exaltation, deification, and to participate fully in everything that God has to give to us. That's removed through work for the dead. And it's a brilliant solution. And my hat's off to Joseph Smith for working so hard to implement this. I mean, the kinds of resources that have been expended by Latter-day Saints to create this kind of a gift, are, are, it's an amazing, amazing contribution, both economically and in terms of time. But I was thinking, just as we were discussing it, a significant learning experience that Christ apparently didn't have, and maybe this is why he loved to have the children come so much, is, is having a child, right? He had the experience of being a child. Or at least even recorded in the Gospels, if he did father a child, there's no record of him spending any time with the child. <laughs> because we say, like, parenthood is the closest thing to godhood. Maybe because he was already God, he didn't need that experience. And maybe, you know, it wouldn't be fair to everyone else if they kind of had a Jesus for a dad. But I don't know. what. Why was it not necessary? Or, or what are your views on it, Dad? So you're, you're saying, like, in Mormonism, we emphasize the family and getting married and how that's necessary to becoming exalted and such, and how you can't even get in the highest level celestial kingdom, and yet Christ apparently didn't do that? I mean, I'm, there are Mormons who would say, he totally did get married. Well, well, not only did he not do that, but, I mean, he kind of cares for his family, but not much. He doesn't even seem to emphasize the family very much, you know? I'm not sure I've got a good answer for this question, but it seems to me that Christ essentially dies while he's a missionary. And missionaries aren't expected to be married so that you can realize the fullness of the gospel before you go on a mission. You've got to get married. We don't do that. And we don't do it for a reason. And that's that, you know, there's an order for everything. Now, I don't believe that it's going to be the case that Christ is without children or without a family in eternity. I certainly don't believe that. You know, I suspect nobody else does. Bottom line is, is that, however, after his death, we see his brother James emerging as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's respected. We see Mary at the foot of the cross. We'd all love to know what happened to Joseph. We'd all love to know what happened to his sisters, and we'd all love to know what the family dynamics were, but that's lost to history. It hasn't been preserved. And even what we have in the New Testament is in many ways only a shadow and an echo of what really historically occurred. We have the testimonies of the gospel writers, but they're really not giving a history. They didn't intend to give a history. They're giving a testimony. And so what they're doing is writing a story that already has been developed by a lot of the story making and, and you know, beliefs that existed in the Christian community itself. And they don't know the canons of history. They're certainly not historical scholars. And so to hold them to that standard would be to misunderstand what they're doing. They're writing about Jesus because he had such a huge impact. His love, and I've said this many times, his love was so great it couldn't be killed. And they're still so influenced by his love, and they feel his presence. The Christians didn't believe that Jesus was dead. They believed that he lived and that he was resurrected, but not merely that he was resurrected. He continued to carry on a Christian life within them. He was present with them. He had taken up a boat in them, and they reflected his energy and his hands on earth. And so they felt Jesus' presence intimately. But what will Jesus' family be like? I suspect that we'll all be his family. Remember, when we talk about families, we can't be provincial. The goal is that there's one entire human family and we're all sealed, nobody excluded. So when we start talking about the divine family, we're talking about the entire human family, and that's his family. And so will he be with a single female 
I don't even want to speculate about that. I just don't know. But it isn't essential to what we're talking about. Remember the kind of caveats I gave when I discussed my view of God's eternity. In order to be fully divine, you don't have to already be resurrected. You don't have to be married in the new and everlasting order of marriage. You don't have to be even baptized in a body yet because the Holy Ghost and Christ were both fully divine before they were mortal and they hadn't experienced any of those things. So the kind of cherished assumptions that we have are just blasted away by the sheer facts of the reality of Christ's life and, and before he was mortal, he was fully God. And so we have to clear away some of these assumptions. It's not necessary in order to enjoy the fullness of Godhood to be in a marital relationship. However, I can tell you from my own personal experience that learning to love in a monogamous relationship with one person over a lifetime is an amazing experience of learning to love and be loved. And at least for me, I can't imagine anything that would teach me more about love than being in that kind of relationship and being a father. Now, that's not true for everyone, but it's certainly true for me, and that's the best I can do. And then, just in conclusion here, I just want to have kind of your final thoughts. I mean, we've gone over a whole lot of different topics as far as regarding the problem of evil and suffering, but, you know, is there any final thoughts you have just on people are suffering, they're going to listen to your ideas, and there's lots of other ideas out there about it, but at the end of the day, what do you want the takeaway to be for the person that is going through hardships or something? I think what a theodicy ought to do, and what this theodicy, I believe, does, gives a framework for people in which they can place their life's experience and give their experiences of evil meaning, that it will give them a hope that their experiences can be turned to good, and give them hope that what appears to be an ultimate tragedy in their lives is not an ultimate tragedy, because it can be not merely redeemed, but exalted, and that the experiences that we're having are the kinds of experiences that a loving God could actually ask us to experience because the goal is worth it. Now, in my own life's experience, and we've talked about this before, but it bears noting again, my experience is that when people are going through incredibly trying experiences, that when they look back with a few years of hindsight in perspective, they will say that that is the greatest blessing in their life and they wouldn't change anything. I think that's a very mature and meaningful perspective. That's not always the case. Some people are unable to find the meaning. Some people are completely obliterated by their experience. And so this isn't a Pollyanna type of a, a theodicy where, you know, everything's a wonderful harmony and if you just get far enough from the earth and look down on it, everything is wonderful. This isn't a greater harmony kind of, of a theodicy. This is a theodicy that requires us to be active in creating meaning through redeeming evil with love. In other words, if we don't learn to love, then the tragedies that occur in our lives are true, true tragedies. If we don't return evil with love, then the evil remains irredeemably evil. If we don't learn to heal our relationships with people, then our relationships remain broken. This is an active theodicy that calls us to be better than we are, that calls us to learn to love in the way that is teaching us is possible. So it's an active teaching tool about how we redeem evil. This isn't a theodicy of, I've explained everything. It's a theodicy of, I've given you a life task of learning to love and express love throughout your life in order to redeem evil. That's why this theodicy is so different. It's a call to action, not an answer. It's a call to redeem evil, not saying that what we call evil is actually good. And that's why it's so different again. 
it actually is the kind of plan that a loving father could come up with. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.